0: Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Now, so today I want to talk about one of the most famous texts in the Bible. It is a favourite at weddings, uh, whether couples are believers or not. Um, I myself have officiated two weddings where the couples had this text as their wedding text. And it does give us um, fantastic biblical teaching about what it means to truly love, actually. But it does so in the context uh, that isn't really related to marriage. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, you find that the text isn't primarily intended to teach us about how we ought to love our spouse, although it does teach us very important things about how we should love our spouse, our spouse. It is not primarily about the virtues of loving our neighbor, although, of course, love is virtuous and we should love our neighbor. And nor does it really intend to teach us a good theology of what biblical love looks like, although it does, of course, provide us with a good biblical theology of love. 1 Corinthians 13 is a a text that teaches us how Christians are to love one another within the context of the church. That's what it intends to do. So seeing 1 Corinthians 13 as a text that teaches something else is a little bit like the story of the tired salesman. Now this is not true, but it's a good story. Um, there was once a, a weary travelling salesman and he arrives at his motel one night after yet another day of unsuccessful sales. In the last couple of weeks he's been trying uh, travelling the highways and byways trying to flog off the stuff that his employers want him to offload. He was exhausted and he was depressed. And so when he gets to his hotel motel, he um, sees that someone had left a Bible there. Maybe it was the Gideons, maybe the previous people left it there. So in his exhaustion, he thought, I would open the Bible, I'll read it, because I know that people take comfort from this book. And so he he decides, he says, okay, God... um, Whatever you show me, this is what will characterize my life. This is what's going to be uh, my vision for the future. And so he opens his Bible. It lands on Matthew 27, verse 5, uh, which says, And so he threw the, the, the silver into the temple, and then he left, and he went, and he hanged himself. <laughs> well, he thought, well, that's not a good verse that he wants to characterize his life so he flips another couple of pages he tries again and he hits on Luke chapter 10 verse 37 and this is Jesus and he says you go and do likewise and understandably he didn't think that was that helpful either and so he quickly skipped another couple of pages and again Jesus is speaking and he says what you're about to do go and do it quickly and so obviously that's not how we ought to read the Bible. We need to understand the context the text finds itself in. So what is actually happening in the Corinthian church to whom Paul is writing this letter? We don't want to be like the travelling salesman. We want to be good biblical Christians. So what is the context of the passage? If you read the book of Acts, Corinthians tells us that, um, no, sorry, uh, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was traveling to Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he actually stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. Uh, and as he was doing that, many Corinthians came to the faith. So, but after he left, there were all these divisions and factions that rose up within the church. And it should be said that the Corinthian church was a difficult church to deal with. They were quarrelling, they were fighting with one another, they um, tried to one-up each other based on which teacher they were following. Not that the teachers, Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, you know, they were all doing the right thing. The people quarrelled about which was the greatest teacher, and I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Um, They also fought in and amongst themselves about the spiritual gifts. My gift is greater than your gift. And they did that in the name of wisdom. Corinthian Christians had become kind of puffed up in their own eyes. They were boasting about themselves and their teachers. They emphasized one spiritual gift over the other, particularly the gift of tongues, which incidentally only appears in this church in the New Testament. And they were saying that um, you know if you didn't have, uh, they they were emphasizing these tongues as evidence of the Holy Spirit working in them. Uh, And so it became just this chaos within the church. And it's against this backdrop that Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, um, and this classic text of love is given to us precisely because Paul was saying, actually you're not loving one another as you ought to. So this great chapter of love is smack bang in the middle of chapters 12 and 14 that have to do with these spiritual gifts and the misuse of them. The talking on tongues, prophesying, preaching, healing gifts, all those sorts of things bookend this passage of love. And so when Paul sandwiches this chapter on love between these two chapters dealing with the same subject, he is trying to emphasise how important love is in the context of a church using its spiritual gifts. And we know that this passage has immense importance. You see, if the church was going to love each other, if they were going to get love within the church right, then they needed to pay attention. And so just before we get to chapter 13, at the end of chapter 12, Paul says that you should desire the higher gifts, and so I will show you the most excellent way. And now he starts talking about love. It's almost as if he's anticipating the question, Paul, why are you talking so much about love? It's just... An emotion, isn't it? But Paul is telling them no, actually, love is what your spiritual gifts are all about. Your gifts are supposed to be upbuilding within the church, and instead, you're using them to cause divisions, to rank one another, and to do all these things that are really unloving. And he says, Listen, you Corinthians, if you boast about these other gifts, they're useless if they're not used in love. These Corinthians don't have um, a view of love as they, uh, for one another as they boast about their gifts. They don't, they don't, these gifts don't have value in God's eyes unless they are grounded in love. And so Paul says love actually is the gift of gifts. It is fundamental, it is alive and it makes us look forward to the fulfillment of what Jesus came to do. So we're going to look at those three things as we explore this text together. Love is fundamental, love is alive, and love makes us look forward. So let's look at the first three verses. Paul there says, If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. What Paul is saying here is that a church may possess many good qualities, many good things. But if it doesn't love, then it is not a church. It is nothing. If we do not love one another then we cannot be the church God wants us to be. Sure, you might have the best teaching. We might have the most carefully constructed sila experience. We might have the best architecture or the nicest paint colours, the best musicians, the best whatever. But if we do not love one another, then we are not the church that God wants us to be. Great teaching is good and admirable. We should aim for that. Good prayer times are praiseworthy and we should do those things. Having special gifts of the Holy Spirit are powerful, but if we do not love each other in a Christian way, then these things amount to nothing. Teaching without love is just a lecture. And a church without love is just a gathering of people who mentally assent to the same sorts of things. Love is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It is so fundamental that Paul spends quite a bit of time talking about how important love is. He says, love is better than speaking in tongues, it's better than prophecy, it's better than charity, it's better than knowledge. But we still get this wrong today. We can major on the minor things. And what characterizes the Corinthian church is that in their immaturity in Christ, they are majoring on the minor things. And I think that still happens today, that we, as immature Christians, we can major on the minors. For example, we have many churches that exist today that focus exclusively on speaking in tongues. And, you know, if you can't do that, then you have not been anointed by the Holy Spirit and you cannot be a Christian. That is the teaching, but that is not love. Other churches might focus on gifts of prophecy, you know. Again, without this, it's almost as if you are a second-hand Christian. If you don't get supernatural revelations from God, then you're not in touch with the Holy Spirit. You don't have a real relationship. But that's not love. And incidentally, I also think they misunderstand what the word prophecy means, but that's aside. Reformed churches get this wrong too, you know. If you don't have your theology absolutely straight, then you're not really as good a Christian as those that do. Or if you don't know Jesus and you're not excited by him as much as I am and as much as I know about him, well then really you're kind of a little bit lower in the ranks. And if you can't at least explain to me the five points of Calvinism, you don't get to speak in the Bible study group. But that's not love. These things are important. But they're important only in the context of love. Love is foundational. If you want to be in a church that works, we need to love one another. It is foundational. So if it's foundational, what does it actually look like? What does love in the context of a church actually look like? Well, what we see in verse 4-7 is that love looks alive spent a long time on crafting that sentence. Love looks alive. Isn't that beautiful? Yes is the answer. Now, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude or self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. So Paul here is getting down to business. He shows us what a living kind of love looks like. He starts by rattling off a bunch of characteristics. Among other things, Paul says, love is kind. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not self-absorbed. It's not just an emotion, notice. It is dynamic and it does something. Look at every single thing that those verses say. If you just want to flick that back one slide back, please, um, you know, uh, verse 4 I'm looking for, Um, every single time love is doing something, it is being patient, it is being kind, it is the opposite of envy, you know, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant. These are all things that are not just characteristics of love, but actually actions that love takes. They don't just describe a feeling in the pit of your stomach when you see your boyfriend or girlfriend. They don't describe a kind of deep-centred longing you feel for someone when you haven't seen them for ages. These things don't even describe, you know, how you feel towards someone you really like. In each and every case here, this kind of love, this congregational love, love that the church is supposed to have for one another, is a doing kind of love. It's all statements of actions love isn't a noun it's not a thing it's not an emotion it's not something that you feel actually biblical love is a verb it's something that you do love hopes love endures love believes it is patient it treats people kindly it stops boasting it wants what is best for the other person it puts aside the selfish desire and it acts for the good of those around them. Look at the person ten seats away, two rows in front of you. When last did you sacrifice for them? That's biblical love, congregational love, love that puts aside the self for the other. You know, if we, we are believers, we are family in Christ, and so what Paul is just saying here is just treat them like family. If someone makes you angry, just forgive them. If they frustrate you, just be patient with them. If they upset you or disagree with you, don't be rude or disrespectful, because love covers a multitude of sins. And we might say things, well, that's just who I am, you know. I just get angry, I struggle to let things go or whatever. Paul would say, so what? For that might be who you were, but you are now a follower of Jesus. You know, you now walk in the way of Christ. You you follow in the way of the great forgiver. You are a student of the great sacrificial love of Christ. You can't be quick to anger or holding a grudge or never let things go because that's how you were but you are now in Christ. That's not who you are anymore. In Jesus, we are called to put off the old self and put on Christ because we've been made one with him. And if we've been made one with Christ, how can we still act and think like we were not part of Christ? Love, verses 4-7 to tell us, is evidenced by selflessness. It does not boast, it doesn't insist on its own way, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it endures all things, it loves the truth. And that's just not where the Corinthian church was at. They valued themselves so highly, they were like puffed up balloons. They were full of hot air, if you like. But love doesn't puff up, it seeks to build up. It flows out of a love for Christ that builds up his church, the other people around them. It, it shows them that they are appreciated. Love seeks to develop spiritual vitality in one another. So when we think of the last month of our actions in our life, in what ways have we shown each other that we really care for one another? It's not that doing that, you know, will somehow save you. We do these things because we've already been saved in Christ Jesus. So how is your walk showing? Do you follow Jesus by loving his church? Or do we seek our own advantage, insist on our own ways, focusing on our privileges and our rights, but not really being willing to pay the cost for the sake of the other person. Friends, I can't help but think of Jesus, our servant king, who came to serve and not to be served. He took on the task of washing his disciples' feet. And if the king of kings did that, how can we put our needs in front of the needs of others? In the face of what Jesus did, how can we not serve one another however we can? You see, it requires a certain type of servant humility. And our hearts are being shaped into that kind of servant-heartedness. And so we're going to struggle with this until we die. But because Jesus died for us and he lives in our hearts, we can stand, Lord Uh, Stand up and say, Lord, here we are. Use us, lead us, help us to put ourselves in your feet. Biblical love is a giving love. So if we struggle with this, we need to come to God and to pray, give me this heart. But we need to look to the cross and see what Jesus has done for us there. And then realize if he was willing to sacrifice that for us while we were still his enemies, how much more ought we to be able to do for those that are our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now that sounds like a lot of hard work to me. Uh, That sounds quite costly. So where do we get the energy, the power to keep going? Well, the third thing is that love makes us look forward so we've seen that love is foundational that love is alive and living now love makes us look forward and we read here from verse 8 love never ends but as for prophecies they will come to an end as for tongues they will cease as for knowledge it will come to an end for we know in part we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes the partial will come to an end when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will, full, uh, I will know fully as I am fully known. Now this, is a, uh, this seems odd in the context of what Paul has been writing doesn't it I mean he's been talking about what love does and now he talks about weird mirrors and partial and fullness and things like that and I think it's quite interesting that Paul here pivots and he starts taking some time to explain the enduring nature of love he says love outlasts all the other gifts prophecy is only in part Knowledge is in part, um, whatever else is in part. They are like childish things, but they will pass away because the fullness will come. And that's really interesting because what he's actually saying is that all of these other gifts are supposed to lead and build up in love which endures forever. Love outlasts these other gifts. It goes on through all eternity. And as Paul says, you know, in in verse 13, ultimately, um, he says that faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. Or in our translation, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Doesn't this tell us that love is somehow different to all of those other gifts? Doesn't it sort of tell us that it is this all-important, most outstanding thing? Isn't that exactly what Scripture commands us to do, is to love God with all our hearts, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbours as ourselves? So where do we get the power to sustain this kind of enduring love, this thing that is not going to pass away, that's not partial, that, that is full? If love is the most excellent way, how do we get to walk in that way in an enduring kind of way? Well, we have to realise that love, true sacrificial love, is what characterises God's love for us. When we believe in Jesus, we have been transferred into Christ. There's a spiritual transfer that happens. It takes us out of our old nature, and love becomes natural to us because we have a new nature. We've been given a new heart. And so, our loving activity isn't bound up in our capacity, our will, our power, our grit to put up with these kinds of people. No, our love flows from our new nature from Jesus himself who lives in us through his Holy Spirit. And because that love now lives in us, we can love other people enduringly, sacrificially. In God's amazing love, he sent the Son while we were still his enemies. And in God's amazing love, Jesus came and he died so that we may never die, that we may have a secure hope in an everlasting life. And it is to that eternity that all love points us to. You see, Paul uses this wonderful little phrase at the end of the chapter. He says, Now we see, an, uh, um, now we see but a reflection as through a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Some translations have this as you're looking through a veil or through a, a darkened or messy uh, piece of glass. We are seeing darkly. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what, no matter how good love is here, it does not compare to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we have an obligation to love. Yes, we must do the loving thing because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, we do have a duty to bear one another's burdens and to share one another's woes and to keep no record of wrong and be patient and all those kinds of things. But you and I cannot do that unless we are plugged in to the source of eternal love. And that does not come from in here. It does not live in our fleshy, selfish human hearts. The whole point of the chapter is that the Corinthians have been doing the whole fleshy heart thing. They've been trying to put themselves up and using their spiritual gifts to be more impressive than anyone else, make themselves look great and powerful. But Paul says, no, these things all come from God. And so to love one another, we actually need to not trust in our hearts, but trust in the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The love we have here on earth, as good as it is, and even in its best form, is but a murky kind of love. A dirty mirror love, a veiled kind of love. But when we see the cross we catch a glimpse of the kind of love that we are commanded to love one another with. And that points us to a greater reality. One day we will see that love face to face. And when Jesus comes back or when we die, we will see God face to face. And the very best experience of love that we can have here on earth will be a glimpse, just a glimpse of that kind of love. the point is, friends, if we are Christians, then we actually have already glimpsed that reality when Jesus died on the cross. We could see what self-sacrificial love truly looks like. And now because we have believed in him, we can love with the same kind of love. And that love does not come from here. It comes from there. And the more we love that, the more that love will live in here. And the more love we will have for one another. And so if you want to be a church that loves, like we are commanded to love, then we must cast our eyes once again to the love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. Let's look to him to show us the way let's pray. Lord we thank you once again this morning for the ability to pause and reflect on what it means to love one another and we do see before us a a weighty task but a wonderful and joyous one. Lord we want to be a church that loves like you command us to hear in 1 Corinthians 13 where we bear one another's burdens, where we Uh, where we are patient and caring, where we self-sacrifice, where we seek the other's good. And Lord, uh, Lord, we recognise that we are a very long way already in, uh, in doing that in a good way. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. But again, we look to our Lord Jesus on the cross and we see the sacrifice that he made while we were still sinners that he died for us. May we be captured by that. May that beauty, may that love characterize the love that lives in our hearts for one another. So that the world may see us and by our love will know that we are your children. That we trust in Christ. May they be so captured by that reality that they will want that and finally come to know you too. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a glimpse of love. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.